thankful for that hope tonight. Hallelujah. I love to sing about heaven. Amen. When I was growing up in the church, that was just, that's what we did. We sang about heaven. Didn't mean all that much to me then. But the longer I live, the more I long for that place and for that day. Amen. Amen. There's been, there's been too many go on. And they're waiting for us there. Amen. And then we see our world. And from a natural sense, we look at it. We realize there's not much hope here. And so we sing about heaven. But I'm thankful, like Brother Dwayne said, we don't have to wait for heaven to have joy. We've got a little bit of heaven down here. Amen. The Lord is with us. Hallelujah. He gives us comfort, he gives us strength, he gives us peace, and um, there is no life like living for the Lord. And again, when I was young, I didn't necessarily understand that. When I was a kid, it seemed some of these things were burdensome and uh, difficult to explain. But oh, what peace we have. How good and pleasant it is, the psalmist said, for brethren to dwell together in unity. Amen. I'm just thankful to know the Lord and to be able to live for him. And uh, what a great privilege to do so. Amen. So good to be with you tonight. I'm not going to, I'm going to ask you to stand just a little bit longer. I want to turn our attention to Acts chapter 17 and I'm going to read, um, It's a little bit lengthy, but I'll read fast, so you'll get to sit down pretty quick. Amen. Acts chapter 17, I'm going to start with verse 16. Maybe I need to get my helpers here while I... Something else that happens with age, right? Amen. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city holy given to idolatry, the worship of idols. And therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. And certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? And others, other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Social media phenomena is not anything new. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For I passed by and beheld your devotions, and I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, Dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, 
seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. I want to back up just a little bit and focus on verses 24 and 25, where Paul says, God made the world and all things therein. He's Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, and he is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. For a few minutes tonight, I want to talk to us a little bit about the nature of worship. What does it mean to worship? What is worship? Would you go with me in prayer? I know that's something we do on Sundays. We pray over the word. But I'd ask you tonight if you'd go with me and just ask the Spirit of the Lord to have his way in our hearts and minds tonight as we look at his word. Lord, we're so grateful for your people. And we're so grateful to be able to join together tonight and to lift our voices, to lift our hands and lift our hearts toward heaven. And we sense your presence, Lord, you're so near. We're so grateful, Lord, that you would draw near unto us. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you would visit him? We don't understand that, Lord, but we're grateful for it tonight. We ask that you'd have your way. Open our hearts and minds to receive your word tonight. Let it take up root in us and let it impact us from this day forward. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Lord bless you. I I hope that my remarks tonight are not too controversial. I don't think they are. But I just stick with me. We just ask that favor of you. Just stick with me. Because we use the terms praise and worship quite often in our vernacular and the way that we do things, our vocabulary in church, we talk about praise and worship. And and sometimes we use those terms almost interchangeably and we refer to our worship service and, and our praise service and we talk about these things. And... I don't necessarily, I think that's appropriate, I think that's okay, but I do think there is a distinction, and sometimes we have the distinction in our mind if we were pressed, well, yeah, worship is just a more intense form of praise, and um, and, and maybe that's true, but I, I want us to take a little bit more of a, maybe an analytical look tonight at praise and worship and how they fit, how they work in our lives and see if we can tease out some things that might help us in our walk with the Lord. First of all, if you just think about the terms in the normal way that we use them, for instance, praise, just take all of the theology out of it for a moment. The word praise, when we talk about praise, we're talking about really an expression of approval. When we praise someone We are expressing approval of them. We're commending them. We're expressing our admiration. We pay them a compliment. We speak highly of them. And we call that praise. We praise our children. We praise our spouse. Or we should. Amen. Praise our spouse. The 
The thing about praise, though, when we start thinking of it in these terms, and, and really this is backed up by Scripture. We'll talk about this as we go through this. When you see the word praise, and, and the Old Testament is filled with this kind of language, and especially the Psalms, where praise is a reaction or a response, and it is some action that we do. We praise the Lord according to his excellent greatness. Um, when we, But the thing about praise is that we can participate in praise and the object of our praise does not need to be nearby. We can be having a conversation and I can brag on my kids, I can brag on my wife, and they don't have to be anywhere around. And yet I can participate in praise. So there is an, an element of praise that does not require intimacy or closeness it just is an expression or uh, an expression of fact. And it's still valuable. I'm not diminishing that. It's still important for us to participate in praise in that way. But praise can also, is, praise is an interesting thing in the sense when we start to look at it in the scripture, we're not the only ones that get to praise. All of creation praises. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, the earth, shows forth his handiwork. It's kind of like, it's kind of like an artist and a work of art. If you travel and you see the great Renaissance paintings or the great Renaissance sculptures and things that have been preserved, it's awe-inspiring. And you look at them and you think, you have a, an elevated opinion because of that work. You have an elevated opinion of that artist, even though you've never met him. And in fact, he's been dead for hundreds of years. Right. Yet your opinion of him and his gift, his ability, is elevated because you've seen that work of art. And in the same way, creation praises God. It speaks forth of the power of God. And this is why people who profess to be atheists, they don't even believe in God, yet when they're faced with some awe-inspiring vista and outlook on nature and they see this thing, they're, they are brought almost to their knees because there is something in them that wants to praise, that recognizes something here is worthy of being elevated, but but they don't believe in God, so what are we going to praise? And what are we? how are we going to elevate? Who do we have a heightened opinion of? And it causes um, a bit of an issue, but it's interesting because, because in that case, praise is actually involuntary. It just happens naturally. And it's ironic. Happens with us too. The Lord said if we didn't lift our voices, even the rocks, the stones would cry out. And the truth is that mankind also is the top of God's creation, is the height of God's creation. Our very existence is testimony to the greatness of God. You start to explore the intricacy of the human body and the human mind and all of the systems that God has put together in us to keep us as close to our right mind as he can and, and as healthy in body as he can. All of these systems working together in us. It's amazing. It's marvelous. And, and the psalmist said, I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made and it's testimony to the greatness of God. So even one who would make an argument and say that God does not exist 
yet by that one's very existence, he gives glory to the God he denies exists. It's, it's a paradox that he can't avoid. The, the beauty of it, though, is that we are the one part of creation who can choose voluntarily to praise the Lord. We have the option to lift our voices and to lift our hands and to lift our hearts and to say, God, we recognize you are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. You are above everything. You sit on the circle of the earth and we're just grasshoppers in your little world. And we enter in to praise in that way. What a great privilege to have the option and the ability to praise. When you read through scripture, who is asked to praise? You can find scripture where everyone, let everything that hath breath, praise ye the Lord. Everyone is called to praise. And it goes back to this idea that we only have breath because he gave it to us. And we owe him that. We owe him that acknowledgement that he is Lord and he is God and he is the great creator. Everyone, believers, unbelievers, even generations to come. The psalmist said that he was wanting to write, write these psalms and he was encouraging praise so that the generation that was not even yet born would praise the Lord. So it's not just something that is a passing season, but, but praise is something that will exist generation to generation. And everyone, regardless of whether you're a believer or not, is called to praise the Lord. And we are called to praise him wherever we are. Throughout all the earth. He, David said, I will praise him in the congregation. But then he says, all the people should praise the Lord. All the nations should praise the Lord. Wherever you are, you should give glory and honor to to God. Why? What is the motivation for this kind of praise? What What is the motivation? Well, if you just read the scripture on its face, praise is usually in response to some action or something that has happened. Something that God did. He created us, so we give him praise. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, who healeth all thy diseases, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Just read down through Psalm 103. Praise the Lord according to his excellent greatness. If the Lord hasn't ever done anything for you, well, then you don't owe him any praise. But if he has done something, you ought to praise him. And when the psalmist says we praise him according to his excellent greatness, well, we start to measure his greatness and we realize our praise can never even measure up. I I will always owe him praise. I will always be in debt. But the interesting thing to me is this idea that praise is needed because of something that God has done. I praise him in response to something that he has provided for me or something that he has done for me. And consequently, because I'm responding to an action, it requires on my part an action in response. We clap our hands. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. We sing. We dance. There are actually seven different Hebrew words, and 
I just read somebody that said that, right? I mean, I'm not the Hebrew scholar. I look these words up. I go look them up in the Old Testament and I can see different places where praise is used and there's seven different Hebrew words. And if you start digging into those words, they all involve action. Some of them are dancing. Some of them are singing. Some of them imply playing an instrument. Some of them, um, what did the psalmist say? In Psalm 34, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. The context of that psalm is when David had gotten himself into a little bit of trouble and he was about to be captured by his enemy and he, he acted like he was out of his mind to get out of that jam. They said he's gone crazy and they let him go. And the words that are used there for praise involve this idea of being in a frenzy, of being a little bit out of your mind. And there, you know, people say Pentecostals lose their mind when they come to church. Well, it's, the principle is there in the scripture that when we start praising the Lord, sometimes it's just overwhelming and we start to think on the goodness of God and the greatness of God and the things that he's done for us. And before long, it's an overwhelming thing. And, and sometimes we just kind of lose control for a little bit. And it's in the book. But because it is in response to some action God has taken, then we have some other reaction in response to that. We respond in kind, if you will. And the thing about praise also is that, is that God is not, he doesn't feel the same way about praise as he does about worship. He says the principle in the scripture is that You give honor to whom honor is due. If someone is worthy of honor, you should praise them. Now, our praise of each other and our praise of people, admittedly, is different than our praise toward God. But there is a recognition that we can do things that are worthy of being praised. And so we can look at all of these different characteristics of praise And we think, well, how does worship line up? And how does this work? And when I read Acts 17, it puzzles me a little bit. Because Paul, and admittedly he's talking to the Athenians, and he's in the midst of this idolatrous city, and he sees all of these various statues, and he's looking around at all of these other statues, and and essentially what has happened is they have placed all of these statues and then these different gods that they would worship and they, would, they were wholly given to idolatry. But just in case they had, there was some god that they did not know, at the risk of offending that god, they put up a statue to the unknown god. And Paul said, yeah, that's the one I need to tell you about. You got all these others and they don't really have any power, but this is the one that I need to tell you about. And so he begins to tell them about the Lord. And he says... The Lord doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, and he's not worshipped with men's hands. Now wait, we just spent all this time talking about clapping and shouting and singing and playing instruments, and we're praising the Lord, and you're saying that God is not worshipped with my hands? So what is worship, and how does it differ from praise? I think to get the clue... You have to go back and look at the way worship is used. And the very first occurrence of worship, at least in the King James Bible, 
involves Abraham and Isaac going to Mount Moriah. The very first occurrence of the word worship in the King James Bible, they had, the Lord had appeared to Abraham. He didn't tell anybody what the Lord said because he was a wise man. He knew better than to tell mama. He gathers the boy up and he takes a couple of servants and they go three days journey. And they get to a certain point and Abraham says, okay, this is as far as you guys go. Because the lad and I are going up there to worship. Well, puts a little different spin on it, doesn't it? Not much dancing going on right now. Because the Lord had asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Now this would be hard enough in any circumstance. But just remember, without belaboring the point, that Abraham was an old man and he was childless. And the Lord had appeared to Abraham and to Sarah and he had promised them a son. And in their old age and through a long and winding road, they did bear Isaac. And most feel like Isaac is pretty well an adult. This is not four-year-old Isaac. This is 18, 20-year-old, maybe even older than that. Maybe, maybe older than that. So as old as Abraham was when the promise was fulfilled, he's now much older. And God says, take Isaac and sacrifice him. Give him back to me. Now the writer of the book of Hebrews gives us a little bit of insight because he says that Abraham had it in his mind that the God who had called Isaac from the dead, Abraham said, I was as good as dead when he was born anyway, that even though he, so he had already raised him from the dead in a manner by him being even born, that if it was time to sacrifice him, God would raise him from the dead a second time. So there was, in Abraham's mind, there was this trust that God was doing what he wanted to do. The thing that's so powerful about this is to think this is the way that worship is introduced to us. Not that we serve a God that requires human sacrifice. You see, the temptation here is to say, well, worship then, clearly worship is not rejoicing and dancing but worship is sacrifice. Worship is suffering. But that will lead you down the wrong path as well. Because it's not just any suffering that's worship. It is sanctified suffering, if you will. It is suffering according to the will of God. So some people have made the mistake of thinking of worship as being just sacrifice and so they enter into uh, self-injury. There's a whole history of this throughout um, the last 2,000 years or so of, of people uh, living the life of a hermit and injuring themselves and doing this as thinking that it was worship. But really, the principle is that worship is obedience to God. That's really where the rubber meets the road. The problem is, Obedience is only tested when it really involves sacrifice. Because if somebody tells you to go have ice cream for lunch, well, that's not a big sacrifice. But if somebody says to do something that you don't want to do, they say take your 
your son, your only son, take him to the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. It is the test of faith and worship as to whether or not you will obey. Jesus said the same thing. If you love me, he said, if you worship me, what did he say? Keep my commandments. I tried that with my kids. It didn't work so good. You tell me you love me. If you love me, keep my commandments. Just do what I, just do what I tell you. But really, this is the principle, right? If we, if we love the Lord, we will be obedient. And what Abraham is telling us from the pages of Genesis is that worship and obedience are inextricably tied together. Now let's think about characteristics of worship that we see right here in that story as compared to what we've already said about praise and what the differences are. First of all, worship is not remote. Praise can be remote. I can praise someone not in their presence. But worship is really about the relationship between me and the object of worship. And so by necessity, I must be facing that object and drawing near to that object of worship. And where praise was enjoined wherever you are in all of the earth, the message of the book of Deuteronomy was that the Lord would establish a place and he would put his name on it and they were to go there to worship. That was the purpose of the tabernacle. That's where his presence was. That's where they were to come and worship. They weren't supposed to be going. And when they got in trouble as a nation, it was because they were going off like the heathen did and they were sacrificing in the groves and they were sacrificing in the hills and they were doing all of these things. Instead of coming to the house of the Lord where the presence of the Lord was and worshiping because Because true worship requires this face-to-face intimacy, this drawing close. It's different than praise. It requires a closeness. And even more so than praise, worship is a privilege reserved for humanity. First of all, there's no such thing as involuntary worship. Because it's tied up in obedience, there is always a choice of the will. It's always intentional. You always choose to worship. God will not be worshipped. He'd be praised, but he will not be worshipped unless some choose to worship. The other thing is to notice that the call to Abraham to worship, that was not a general call to worship. That wasn't a call to every person throughout the countryside. That was a call to Abraham personally. Because the call to worship goes out not to everyone, but to those who are in relationship. That's where the worship comes from. It's when there is that relationship and God calls us to that. A praise would happen in the sanctuary, in the presence of other people. But really, worship is not about all of that at all. Praise was a testimony of the goodness of God. The psalmist says you ought to praise the Lord among the heathen and declare his great works. Talk about how great God is. But worship is never described in that way. Worship is always face-to-face, intimate, closeness, nearness. And we're being drawn nearer and nearer to the Lord. Why are we told to worship? What's the motivation? In praise, it was because of some great thing he had done, according to his excellent greatness. Worship, it's just because of who he is. 
He is God. For the same reason that we would express respect, whether we agreed or not with the President of the United States or the Queen of England or any other dignitary that walked in here, we would express respect because of who they are, whether we agreed or not. On a much greater level, we are commanded to worship God because of who he is. But now here's the, here's the beauty. How do we worship? Paul told the Athenians, God is not worshipped with men's hands. What, what are you trying to say, Paul? He's saying it's not the individual acts in which we worship him. But since our worship is in response to who he is, our worship is expressed by who we are. When we worship, it's because we are becoming like him. That's the greatest form of worship. You think, boy, you made some leaps there, Brother Starks. Well, what does the Old Testament say? Three different occasions we are told that we ought to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We're never told to praise the Lord in the beauty of holiness, only to worship him in the beauty of holiness. Now, why is that? Well, in Leviticus chapter 11, he's calling the people of children of Israel, and he explicitly says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. It is in this becoming like him that we are worshiping him. Now, this is not just, I don't mean to bore you with some academic discussion about the differences and characteristics of praise and worship. What I mean to do is to kind of expand our thinking tonight and realize that our worship to God is not tied up in individual actions. It's not tied up in attending service three times a week, although certainly church attendance is important and that's a part of our lives. But actually what is happening is that as we are transformed by the power of the Holy Ghost and by using the power that God has given us when he filled us with his spirit and by becoming more like him, we are worshiping him in everything that we do. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. What is holiness? Well, you could make the case that holiness is the primary characteristic of God. Now, I know John says God is love. I get it. But don't forget Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. And he's high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. He paints this majestic picture of the greatness and the majesty of God. And he says there are angels flying around and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's what these angels, they were crying day and night as they circle around the throne, holy, holy, holy. Now those same Hebrew scholars say that the, in Hebrew, in, in English, we, have, we say good, better, and best. Well, in the Hebrew, if they want to emphasize a word, they repeat it. And if they want to express it or stress it to the max, to the superlative, they say it three times. There is no other characteristic that I can find or that I know of in Scripture that is stated three times related to God's nature. 
But we do see he is holy, holy, holy. I, I think a, just a simple way for my mind to think about it is holiness is just the nature of God. That's what he is. He's holy. And if God would do something, that's a holy act. And if God would not do it, that's, an, that's something I don't want a part of. But if it's so much, it's his character. And so when he says to us, be ye holy for I'm holy, he's saying you need to have the same character and the same nature that I have. And that having that nature and allowing that nature to flourish and to grow, that is worship to me. And this is the point at which we, like the apostle Peter, the Lord said, it'd be easier for a rich man to go through the, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And Peter said, Lord, who then can be saved? And when we realize that our worship is tied up in us becoming like him, we say, well, then who, Lord, Lord, who could be saved? But this is where for us, The key is having been filled with the Holy Ghost, having been justified and counted sinless, and then given the power to overcome sin, we have the power, not just like everybody else to worship, but we actually have the choice and the ability through the power of the Holy Ghost to worship like no other people on the planet. Because then worship begins to saturate the entirety of our lives. See, for us, there is no division between secular and sacred. Sometimes we like the idea of, I go off and I live my life Monday through Saturday, and then I come and I'm a Christian on Sunday, but then I have my other life. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that we are a new creation. We are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And that we don't put that creature down when we walk out the doors of the church. We carry that new man with us, or rather, that new man carries us wherever we go. Right. And, and allowing the Spirit of the Lord to, to flourish in our lives and creating an environment in our own lives where the Lord can work and He can cleanse us and he can remove all of the things that are not like him that's the greatest act of worship it is the ongoing act of worship because we're in the process of actually becoming like him yeah. now don't get don't get too worried i know we're not we're never going to make it this side of heaven i get it i understand it but the reason for spiritual disciplines is not to make us miserable The reason why prayer is important, the reason why Bible reading is important, the reason why fasting is important is because there are two natures inside of us that are at war. Paul said, the things I want to do, those are the things I don't do. And the things I despise and the things I don't want to do, those are the things I find myself doing. And he said, so I, I find in my own mind there is, there is a war in my members. And if we want the Spirit to win, if we want to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, then we have to create an environment in our own lives where the Spirit of the Lord can work. 
And if we're constantly feeding carnal desires, and we're constantly reading junk that stirs up things that are contrary to God, or we're watching things that stir up things that are contrary to the Word and the nature of God, we're creating an environment where our carnality is being fed and our spiritual man is being starved to death. But if we partake in spiritual disciplines, we're denying the flesh. How many of you have ever noticed if you have a desire, if you have an appetite that you struggle with, and you face temptation, and you give in to that temptation, that's the end of it, right? That satisfies, and that's the end of it. It's all over, right? No. When you give in to that temptation, it comes back stronger. You fed it. It's growing stronger. So, the principle is... We deny ourselves all of these things, and we crucify our flesh, our desires that are contrary to him. And sometimes that involves doing things that seem like, I mean, we do things that are not sustainable. You cannot fast forever. You'll die. But what seems to happen is that in our flesh and in our humanity, our appetites rise and fall together. And if we get out of control in one area of our life, we're probably out of control in several others. And if I start to take control in one area and I fight that battle in that one area, what I have found is battles in the other areas get easier too. The appetites seem to rise and fall together. So when we engage in spiritual disciplines, what we're doing, we're crucifying the flesh. We're putting those appetites under subjection and we're putting them underneath and we're allowing the spiritual appetites. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. They'll be filled. The same principle applies. If there's a little hunger in your life, feed it. If there's a little hunger for the word, feed it. If there's a little hunger to pray, feed it because it'll get stronger. If there's a little hunger to go deeper in Christ, then feed that hunger because it will grow. And if you hunger and you thirst after righteousness, you will be filled. You know what that says to me? The amount of righteousness that I get is directly proportional to how hungry I am. If I have a little hunger for righteousness, if I have a little thirst for righteousness, I'll get a little bit of righteousness. But if I can stir that up, if I, if I can somehow stir that appetite and get it going and, and really get it fired up, then I get a larger appetite for holiness, for righteousness. And, and maybe I'll get more of it. The Lord promised we would be filled. Right. And what happens when we do that is that the Spirit begins to saturate our whole lives and our life becomes worship to Him. Right. Oh yeah, it's, part of it is coming to church, but that, that coming together, we, we look for that. We, we desire that coming together and that strengthening together. And, and really, it's not so much about the act itself. It's that the rising tide of His Spirit in our life has lifted us. And it's created a desire for us to be in His presence. And so, yeah, church, coming to church is part of worship. But really, it's the big picture. It's the whole picture. Right. And we're being raised and lifted. And, and our worship is pure. You know, for praise, the characteristic that makes praise valid is sincerity. If you're going to praise somebody, you ought to mean it. 
And the Lord said in Isaiah, why don't we stand together? I'm going to wrap up here. The Lord said in Isaiah, he said, this people, they draw nigh to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He said, I'm not fooled. I'm not fooled by their praise. They say the right things. They, they draw nigh to me with their lips and they say all the right things, but, but their hearts are far from me. And, and their, their heart is not behind what they're saying. They don't mean what they're saying. They're going through a ritual. They're, they're just going through doing what they think they're supposed to do, but it's not. But see, worship is always sincere because it's always intentional. And really, worship always has to be sincere. So when is worship valid? What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? He said, she was having this discussion, should we worship in Mount Gerizim or should we worship in Jerusalem? And he said, you don't even know who you worship. Why are you worried about where you're going to worship? He said, at least we know who we worship. And then that famous verse 24, they that worship him, the Father seeks true worshipers and The true worshipers are those that worship in spirit and in truth. So there's a sincerity, there's a passion there. It's got to be true. For our worship to be acceptable, this this is borders on scary. For our worship to be acceptable to the Lord, it must be founded in truth. If you think about it, people in the world worship a lot of different things. They give themselves to things. They, they draw near. They have all those characteristics of worship. The one-on-one thing, they have, their, they have their idol set up. It goes beyond praise. It goes to worship, but it's not truth. And, and it's not worship itself that makes the difference. It is when we're worshiping the one true and living God. So our worship must be grounded in truth. And in fact, the Lord... Both Matthew and Mark record the words, the Lord said, in vain, talking about those that were around, in vain they worship me. What makes their worship vanity? He said, they are teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. It's not, it's not rooted in truth. It's not in the word. It's not, it's not a command from God. Their, their, their worship is vanity because it's not founded upon a relationship and an understanding who God is. This is why we have an obligation because we have received the Spirit. We have the ability to bring the power of the Holy Ghost to bear in our lives and we can overcome things that once would have tripped us up. We are made overcomers through the blood of the Lamb. And as we go and as the Lord works with us and he works through us to purify our lives and we become more and more like him, then our worship to him becomes purer and purer and more pleasing to him. My purpose tonight was just to expand our thinking a little bit about what it means to really worship the Lord. Because I found Paul's words so jarring the God who is not worshipped with men's hands, that's the one I want to declare to you. And I want to say, Paul, how then is he worshipped if it's not with hands? I think the only way we can say it is it's with the whole man. We would say with your heart, 
But really, it's the entirety. It's everything that we are. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. All on behalf of the Lord Jesus. There's a phrase when I was growing up. I don't know if I hear it as much anymore. As unto the Lord. You give. We give to the Lord. And the guy with the the ushers would come by. And I would think, how am I giving to the Lord? I know him. And my mother says, you give as though you were giving to the Lord. Because they're going to take it. It's going to be used for that purpose. You give as unto the Lord. It's a biblical principle. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he said, servants. That's slaves. When you serve your masters, serve them well as unto Christ. Now he was writing that particular verse to the slave. He didn't say, if your master is a holy man. He didn't say, if your master is a godly man. If he's a believer. He just said, slaves, if you're going to serve the Lord, do what your earthly master says and do what he says. And and the, the next verse he says, not with eye service. That is, not doing good when he's around watching as men pleasers. But as unto God, View your service of what you're doing as an offering unto Christ, he says in verse 5 of Ephesians 6. And in verse 6, he reiterates, as unto God. I think we would do well to consider every aspect of our lives and say, you know, whatever I'm doing, whether it is making preparation for taking care of my family, if it's on my job, if it's going to school, if it's... Uh, if it's work around the church, you know, we think, boy, we, we'll work for the church and that'll be something we do for everything we do, we do for God. It becomes a testimony to the greatness of God. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer in closing tonight and ask him, Lord, help us purify our hearts, Lord, and allow this worship to just permeate our entire lives. Lord, we're so grateful for your spirit that you've given to us. We could never rise to the level of pleasing worship without your spirit being in our lives. Lord, we ask tonight that you would open our hearts and open our eyes and our understanding and help us to know the importance of holiness and that holiness even in itself is not just an action here or an action there, but it's so much deeper. It's it's attitudes, it's character, it's integrity, it's everything that makes us, Lord, if you could somehow work with us and and make us holy and help us, Lord, to overcome the things in our own lives and our own desires, our own flesh that would be counter to your will for us. But help us, Lord, to purify everything in our hearts and our minds and our lives so that our lives would be worshipped to you and we would be an expression of, of greatness, of the greatness of God in our lives. And everything that we would do would be an expression of worship to you. Lord, that when people would see us, not that they would, that we would draw attention to ourselves, but that somehow, Lord, they would see you through us and that we would impact those that are around us as though your very spirit were flowing through us. You said it would be like rivers of living water that would flow out of us. Let your spirit flow from my life and, and impact those that I come in contact with. And let, Lord, my own understanding know that, that that is truly the worship that you desire from us. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. 
Renew a right spirit within me. Keep me safe, Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to purify ourselves before you so that our very lives would express the worship that you so greatly deserve. And that our closeness and our intimacy with you, our, our relationship with you, our friendship with you would be such, Lord, there would be nothing that would stand between us, but that our intimacy with you would be uninterrupted, God, by the things that are not like you. Now we see through a glass darkly, but we know there's coming a day when we will see you face to face. We're looking for that day, O oh Lord, but until then, transform us, change us, lead us, point us to the areas of our lives that need to be worked on, the rough edges that need to be smoothed, and we'll be forever grateful. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we offer thanks to the Lord tonight for his great presence, his great strength. We give you honor, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen. Lord bless you. We will see you Sunday for our regularly scheduled services, Lord willing. Amen. And it seems odd, but stay warm.